welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez. And we are lucky enough to be sitting here with Bruce Campbell. Bruce, can you tell us how you got into the profession of acting? I became a producer. Really? Okay. I wanted to be an actor, but um, when it came time to making movies, you know, I'm in Detroit. They don't make movies in Detroit. So I partnered up with my pal, high school pal Sam Raimi and another guy, Rob Tappert. We, we formed a limited partnership with a lawyer to raise money for the first Evil Dead. Wow. So you actually, I mean, you would have to be pretty savvy in terms of how film worked to even come up with that plan. Well, fortunately for us, um, our friend Rob Tappert had a lot of, had a troubled childhood. So he had a family lawyer who was always bailing him out. So he knew a lawyer. We didn't know a lawyer. I mean, we didn't, you know, I don't have lawyers in my family. How would you know to create a limited partnership? Uh, well, we knew that we had to create an entity. If we were going to get money from investors, you had to have a structure. You know, what are you going to do? These days, it's the LLC, the Limited Liability Corporation, which is over, it's overblown a bit. It means you can hide under your shell corporation. In a limited partnership, you can't. No one can hide. Under, meaning the investors could come after us if they really, really wanted to. There's no corporate shell to protect us. But we didn't care. We were 21 years old. We were like, what are you going to get? My bubblegum collection? You know, I mean, there wasn't anything to get. But we worked with this lawyer and said, hey, we want to raise money for a movie. And a limited partnership is often used at the time. This was 1979. Um, limited partnerships can sometimes be used to build a building where the building costs a million dollars and we need this many investors and they're each going to put in this much and they each get this much piece of it. So you have, we had to go through all that and determine for $10,000. First of all, you have to determine what's your budget. I was going to ask you, did you have a script already that you budgeted out? Well, we did everything backwards on the first one. I mean, we were lucky we, we pulled it off because we made a lot of stupid mistakes, but we didn't make fatal errors. We made simple mistakes, but nothing was tragically fatal. Like, we got the film copyrighted. You know, we formed an entity so that when investors make money, we know how it goes back out to them. We knew that Mrs. O'Leary owned this much percentage. and So you start with a script, obviously. That's your blueprint for your building. And then you budget that and hope that, and our budgeting was way off. How so? Where were you well, the original, off? Uh, we were looking for, I think, something like $90,000. It was 150000 total we were looking for. And we wound up, it, the budget was about 375000 when we were done. So we, we went over our budget by almost four, three times. But, you know, we, we borrowed money from investors first. If we needed more money, we went to them first and said, hey, you've invested, but now what if you just loan us money to finish this movie? We'll give you a good interest rate. So some did, some didn't, and we just slowly finished the movie over time. But it's hit or miss. But you start with a budget, you start with a script, you then break it down, get a budget, then you figure out how many investment units that'll break into. When we, a limited partnership, we could only go after like 25 or 35 investors. We couldn't go to any old person. They had to have proof of a certain amount of yeah, disposable income. Absolutely. They, if they had to be a fat cat, they had to make a certain amount of money, or they had to be knowledgeable about, uh, about investments. They had to fill out lots of paperwork to invest in our movie. So How did you find these people? Slowly, painfully, miserably. We went to, first you go to relatives. Uh, my parents were the first investor, so I took their money. And then you can go to other investors and go, hey, we got our first investment. We already have this much in the bank. 
and then the more you get in the bank, you can sell. You know, it's safety in numbers. Um, we got a guy who, one of our lawyers, a junior lawyer, was with the Masco family, and Masco is the three-way Delta faucet in Detroit. They're very wealthy family. Um, and so we got three or four of his relatives, and then other guys are on the golf course, and he's golfing one guy who, who invested, was golfing with his buddy, and guys talk, what are you doing? Oh, I invested. Oh, in what? Oh, a movie. Really? Well, maybe I'll invest in that movie. Oh, yeah? Okay. Boom, they invest. So you slowly, we had to get to 90,000 to release the funds from escrow, because you have to protect them. You go, look, if we don't get, if we don't pull this off, you get all your money back and some interest. It's in an interest-bearing account. And legally, we had to get to 90 grand to release it from the bank. We got to 85,000, could not find another penny to save our lives. Had to send a special letter to the investors asking for their permission to go at 85 instead of 90 to get the film in the can. And they agreed, which was great. So we went way underfunded down to Tennessee to make the first movie. And then later we borrowed and begged and stole. And it took about, it was a four year process. We shot the movie in 79 which is now 30 years old. Uh, and it came out three to four years later. So most of the budget that you had to uh, re get more for was for post? It was for everything. I mean, we didn't do, we just didn't know how much things cost. We were supposed to shoot for six weeks. We shot for 12 weeks. Because of the reality of our inexperience and Sam Raimi was trying to do something very stylized. If you look at the movie, Watch the movie without sound sometime, and you'll see visually that it's not your normal horror movie. He's doing weird shots, weird sequences, very tricky stuff. What made you guys think that you could pull this off? Well, we, we weren't convinced, but we wanted to do it. You know, you see a movie in a theater, somebody had to make that movie from somewhere. Not everyone's born a movie star. You know, directors aren't, they're not anointed. You know, writers have to figure out how to write. So, you know, we were no different. And the real joy of that project was finally going into my local multiplex and seeing the movie on a Saturday matinee. Yeah, there weren't many people there, probably only 25 people there. I didn't give a shit. I mean, we were done. We were, that to me was the success because I could see the movie in the same exact theater that I saw movies as a kid, Poseidon Adventure, whatever movies we saw. So to me, that was the success, that we, we did it. One thing that strikes me about that movie is that it has a sense of humor. Where do you think the, the place of uh, humor in horror, where, where do you think they marry? Well, the first movie, it, some things are funny because it's melodrama. You know, things are very hokey in that movie. You know, um, bad lines of dialogue being delivered poorly sometimes equals humor without, <laughs> without intending it. So I think there's some unintended humor in the first one. In the second one, we actually injected our own form of humor where we mixed a lot of slapstick. So in, in horror, horror and slapstick equals splatstick is what we called it. Um, it's a strange bedfellow. You have to be too careful because if you're just making it too jokey, people will go, hey, screw you, it's not scary. So, you know, we had to make sure that you still are making a scary movie if you're people want to see a horror movie but as filmmakers we didn't want to make the same movie over and over again so you come up with different angles or try this or try that so that's how those movies evolved in particular one of 
the things that I think is so interesting about your story is that nowadays it would be, I would say, probably impossible for that same Bruce to go sit in a multiplex and see that film because Why? because of the way the distribution pipeline has been monopolized by the, the studios. Were you picked up by a studio? Well, we approached New Line Cinema when the movie was done, same company that did Lord of the Rings. Uh, we call them New Lies Cinema, uh, run by a guy named Bob Shady. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny, the first Evil Dead was still, was never picked up by a studio. I mean, New Line Cinema, the, when we were dealing with them, I mean, the head of marketing brought his lunch in a paper sack. You know, I mean, this was not a big company. So they were still a little company at the time. We were just wanted to find anyone who would pick up the cost of making prints and getting the prints around and distributing them. I think it's easier now than it was before. I think people have it easier. In what way? In many ways. Uh, I can go to Kmart, get an HD camera for, you know, 750 bucks. Back at the, how much? 399, sorry, I've been corrected. 399, right, I, I'm out of touch, obviously. But the point is then you take it, you make your movie, and you can edit it on a home computer, and you can take a DVD to your local theater because more and more theaters are installing, you know, a DVD player. So we, I couldn't do that before because you had to make a print, 35 millimeter print. In order to get a print, you had to go through all these lab processes. Now you could spit out a freaking DVD in a day. So that to me, there's no excuse for a filmmaker. Just laziness will cause them to fail. There's so many opportunities now. And there's, there, there are revival houses, there are retro houses, there are a lot of theaters that don't like the multiplex deal either. There's young couples, young married couples get together, refurbish a theater. You know, I've showed some of my movies in some very cool theaters. There are alternative cinema. You just have to find them. But, you know, if there are tens of thousands of movie theaters in the States, not everyone's going to be a multiplex. Some are big old single screen beasts with the paint chipping, and, and some of them are uh, funky art houses or calendar houses. So the trick is just to find them as a filmmaker. You've got to find a match. If you make a horror movie, then maybe some midnight you can rent out your local theater Saturday and you rent the theater and just do it and take the ad in the local paper and talk to the local radio station and make a poster and it's all mom and pop. I mean, it can be done. But people don't think that they can do it. They talk themselves out of it. Yeah, we were just saying that there's a, a whole um, level of the industry that operates on these certain rules that you have to follow and yeah. the gatekeepers and so on and so forth. And that you doesn't- have to have a product that somebody wants to buy. Uh, in order to really get the ball rolling with our with the first Evil Dead movie, we could not get a deal in the States. Nobody wanted it. So we got a foreign sales agent, this old guy named Irvin Shapiro, who goes all the way back to doing publicity for the battleship Potemkin. That, that's a silent movie. Made by Sergei Eisenstein. Yeah. This guy was one of the first people to bring to bring foreign films here to the States. He was involved in screen gems for television, of buying movies, buying the rights for movies for television. So this guy was a real pioneer, but when we met him, he was literally 85 years old. He couldn't even walk, you know what I mean? But he handled all of George Romero's movies. 
because we wanted apples for apples. We didn't want to go to a guy and go who had just done G-rated comedies, and now here's an unrated horror movie. We went to him, and he knew George Romero, and he, he handled some of his Mike Martin, some of George's other weirdo movies. And so we approached him because we knew that we'd be speaking the same language. Because every, you know, they go to the American film market, they go to the Cannes Festival, and then MiFed in Italy. Those are the three big markets every year where independent films are bought and sold. So we saw his ads in the trade papers, and you see the movies that they represent. And you go, this is perfect. Or you go, ah, don't even call them. They only do action movies, or they do little nudie movies, you know, or whatever, exploitation. So we found the right guy at the right time, and we were very fortunate that he was honest. I mean, he would say to us, don't make a deal with this guy over in Japan. He's a creep. He'll never pay. He was offering more money initially, but he goes, you'll never get anything beyond that. Take less money from this guy here. They'll give you an honest accounting. And so he held our hand through the whole thing. And he's the first guy, you know, you learn terms as, you, as a filmmaker. He goes, where are your delivery elements? We were like, what's that? What's a delivery element? Can you explain that for our listeners? Well, delivery elements meaning... When you go to sell a movie to, let's say, Warner Brothers, let's just pick a name, they're going to say, where's your negative? Because they have to make prints. Where's your dupe negative? Where's your inner positive? These are all things that you need for laboratories to make massive prints overseas and everywhere. You're going to show your movie around the world. So you take the negative and you make an inner positive. Then you can make a duplicate negative off the inner positive. Because you never want to keep using your negative. You want to wear out the inner positive and then go make another one from the negative. But you know what I mean? So we didn't know any of that. And each one of these steps is $10,000. We're like, oh my God, we just raised 350000 to make this movie. Where are we going to get the rest of this? You know what I mean? We thought we were doomed. And he fronted us a lot of that money. He did? Yeah. That's remarkable. Oh, it's completely remarkable. And he made a lot of money ultimately, but. I think he saw the potential of doing it. He also said, where are your photos? When we don't have any photos. You mean like stills from the yeah, set? stills. Where are your stills? You need like 20 stills. Color, black and white. The, this is all part of the delivery elements. You what about errors and omissions insurance? Yeah, you have to get that too. It's about $5,000. And it, it's so that if anybody sues you, you've got insurance against that. For If you took a shot of Sally Sue in the movie and you didn't get her release thing, then you, she might sue us. You just have to do some things like that. Yeah, errors and omission policy. You have to have what it's called a foreign text list, where they, you take, the, it's the titles, but without the names, they, so someone can take your title and then put their own names on the, in another language. Then you have to do the same with the sound. You have to do an M&E, a music and effects track. You drop the dialogue track out. But sometimes there's dialogue while you're closing a door. So if you move the dialogue, now your door close is gone with it, so you gotta put a door close back in so that you can send that overseas so they have the full soundtrack that they can add their dialogue on top of. You have to give them a clean track with just music and all the sound effects. Isn't this all kind of difficult with that camera that we bought from uh, Kmart or whatever? No. No, because you've got systems now. You can buy eight tracks, 24 track mixers, it's way more affordable than we had. You can mix your own movie. Everything's digital, you know. You get a CD of your friend's music, you put it on. I mean, it's so right there now. I think it's so easy, so much easier.
I mean, just handling film, editing process of editing 35 millimeters, just it's very labor intensive. So it's just it's a better deal now. But so we hooked up with that guy Irvin Shapiro, and he guided us through all these festivals, and we made sale after sale, and got it going. And well, what happened is he then sold it to England, and England made a big deal out of the movie. So it started overseas. Evil Dead was not couldn't get arrested here in the States. So then it opened overseas, and in a bunch of markets, we were only second to E.T. Yeah, in 82. So it became huge over there. Then it was, then it got accused of being a video nasty. What, what is that? Video nasty, uh, there's a, they have actual censorship in England that if they don't like something, they can cut it out. And I, as a filmmaker, have no say. It's censorship. Yeah, they can say, in Evil Dead 2, for example, I'm unconscious on the floor, and this redneck guy kicks me in the face. They cut it out, because you can't kick a man who's down. Almost literally. You can't kick an unconscious. It's like, that's like torture or whatever. It's just not right. So they would cut it out. Yeah, so we had to deal with that. So it was a video nasty, went to trial. It was a big court case. Yeah, saying this was not fit, you know, this is... They wanted to block the whole movie. They wanted to... It was banned. Evil Dead was banned in four or five countries. A lot of Did, do you think that helped with your publicity? Oh, absolutely. So what happened is then they lost the case. They couldn't prosecute it. We won. And now everyone went, what is this stupid movie that I keep hearing about? Then they had to see it. So then the video came out in 83, and it was the number one video of the year. You look down the list to see The Shining. You know, you go, we kick Stanley Kubrick's ass. And that's when it shows you it can be done. That you can, from your little home state, raise money from private people, make a movie, get it. But it's, it was four years of our life. I mean, thank God I didn't have, I had no relationship, I wasn't married, I had no kids. Because we, that's all we did for four years was get that stupid movie out. Is this something that you always wanted to do uh, when you were younger, was make movies? Yeah, absolutely. Act. But movies are, were a logical, you know, watching movies as kids, you want to be in movies. You know, necessarily two generations away from me, they might want to have done theater. But now it's movies. Everyone wants to be in movies. So. Did you make short films when you were yeah, younger? Tons of them. We have all kinds. We have about 50 different Super 8 movies of different kinds, war films, comedies, that we made all through high school. So by the time we made Evil Dead, we had actually made... 40 different little shorts of different kinds. And the movie's still crude, so it shows you how much it, how much filmmakers need to get their act together. You know, most filmmakers go, how do, you, how do I make a movie? I'm like, make one and then throw it away. You know, <laughs> write a script and get rid of it, because it's gonna suck. And then write another one, and then, go, and then rewrite that and try and fix it, and you know, it's a process. It's a, it's a, it's a craft. You have to learn how to do it all. So anyway, it opened very strongly overseas. Then New Line Cinema in the States went, we've always liked that movie, you know. So we were able to get a deal with them and go back to everybody who didn't want it in the first place because we proved, like getting a bank loan, you can get a bank loan if you prove to the loan officer that you don't need the money. That's how you get a loan. They make you prove that you've got income. I don't need your loan, but I want a loan. So they give you the loan. So if you don't need their distribution, now they want to distribute your movie. If you're willing to do it without them, that freaks them out. Then they go, okay, we want to distribute your movie. So we wound up with New Line. And we were very glad, this is what filmmakers need to know too, 
We had an offer at one point to sell the entire worldwide rights to Warner Brothers for the movie. For how much? Uh, not enough. Because the deal is, if we weren't going to get our investors clean, it's a one-time sale. If you're selling all the rights to your movie, your investors better get out clean plus a little bit of profit. Because what if Warner Brothers never gives you another penny? Which they probably won't. Oh, they probably won't. So but we, by breaking the rights up, we had New Line Cinema handled the domestic, and our, our sales agent, Irvin Shapiro, handled all the foreign. And we did it by ourselves. So you got to keep basically the foreign was your gravy. That was our gravy. And it turns out the companies we did we dealt with with foreign gave us overage checks, meaning they 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 recouped what they advanced to us. Then they got even more, so they gave us a percentage of that. Whereas in the States, New Line Cinema, we got one check from them, never saw another penny. Not even from residuals as an actor? It was non union. There's no unions. The first Evil Dead doesn't have a union to its name. There's no way to retroactively make it sag? No, 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 no. You're either union or you're not. So, um, but we were able to, New Line Cinema, we owed them a percentage of our video rights, which we sold to an overseas company, and we just didn't pay them. We probably said, didn't pay you. Well, because we audited New we Line. Audit. Yeah, we audited them. What did that cost? $6,000 that we took from foreign sales and audited them. Turned up nothing. We're like, okay, fine. So guess what? You're not going to get any video. We're just not going to pay you. And they never contested it, which is like an, it's an admission of guilt, if you ask me. So then it kind of went from there. What was the next movie you made? After Evil Dead? Yeah. A film written by the Coen brothers called Crime Wave, which died a thousand deaths. It was our first studio film. Uh, it was our first union film, and we made, we had no control over it. It was re-edited. Uh, I was kicked out of the lead role. I mean, it was really everything that went right with Evil Dead went wrong with Crime Wave. But you need those in your life, filmmakers. You got to have a bomb. Right. What did you learn from that? I learned uh, how to deal with studios. Uh, we learned how to budget properly. We learned how to deal with unions, turnarounds, force calls, meal penalties, night premiums. We didn't know any of that shit before. Like, what? You didn't have a... a the studio didn't give you a line producer that they wanted on the set? Yeah, they did. They did. They did that. So, you know, we had to deal with all that. It was terrible. It made us not... We went, turned right around to Evil Dead 2 after that. We were like, this is bullshit. This is not the way to make movies. So how did you go about making Evil Dead 2? Did you form an LLC was, or did... Uh, no, no. We went. We got money from Dino De Laurentiis. Mr. Had you, Mr. Had you paid back your investors on the first one? Uh, they broke even with the rights fee for the second one. They got some of their money back over a long period of time, but the rights fee that we paid them to do a sequel, our original investors, that put them over the top. That put them into profit. So it took them six, seven years to break even. But now they've each made probably 30 times their money. Wow. Yeah. So they must be very pleased. They're very happy. All right. So what happened after that? Uh, then we just started making movies because we were kind of up and running and then we moved to LA. Moved to LA and I became an actor. So you stayed in Detroit this whole time? I did, through the first uh, couple Evil Dead movies. Did you have a lot of um, agents and managers trying to sign you after Evil Dead 1? No. No, I got a manager first who then took me around to meet some agents, but no, no one was really clamoring. It was a cult hit, it wasn't a popular, you know, it wasn't a big hit. 
was just around forever. How about after Army of Darkness? Uh, well, I went into television after that. And so. that's when you were on Xena. And Army of Darkness didn't make any money. Really? No, Army of Darkness was a bomb. It cost $13 million and made about $13 million. So it's only later, I mean, it's only 20 years later that the thing has, you know, had multiple DVD versions and this and that. But no, at the time, it was not known as a successful movie. Now it's an American movie classic. People love that movie. Uh. Yeah, I know. But, uh, you know, things don't happen overnight. That's one thing I learned, too. You just have to, you have to deal with it. Do you think that that movie doesn't fit into a particular genre, or, or it, why do you think? It's a genre piece, you know, and that's always a little dangerous, you know. That was sort of an adventure horror film. Do you feel that television and film are radically distinct for you as an actor? Um, TV's handy because you come into people's living rooms once a week for years, and they really get to, they get to quote, quote unquote, know you. And it's very good for exposure. Uh, but some actors hate doing television and will never do it. I don't see what the difference is. Tele television is actually faster. I like TV because it's a very fast medium. By noon, you've done a lot of stuff. On a, on a big feature, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a, on our show, Burn Notice, that we do now, it's about a six-week delay from us acting to it being on the screen, which is still pretty tight. Are you producing Burn Notice? No, I'm just an actor. Are you producing at all? Uh, yeah, I just made a movie that I, I produced a half a dozen movies, so, you know. Are you thinking of going into television production? No, not interested. I don't, I'm not that interested in television. I like little indie movies. I, like, I made a movie a couple years ago called My Name is Bruce, and I like doing little handmade movies. It's way more, it's a, that's more appealing to me. And where is your base now? I live in Oregon. I live in the, the woods of Oregon. Do you think that uh, what they say about a budget of an independent film not going over $3 million is accurate? Yeah, that's about right. I'd say two. Don't even go over two. Because look, the deal is you want to make another movie. Make a movie for 250000 then make a movie for 500000 then make a movie for a million, and cap it. You've got to stop somewhere, otherwise the risk starts to increase. Keep them cheap and you'll always work. Do you think it helps the fact that you're an actor and a producer? Do you think that that was a good decision, career yeah, decision a for you? good decision because, you know, most actors sit around waiting for the phone to ring. I'm not going to do that, you know. I made, I made my own opportunities. I hate the idea of having to go into a room and audition for somebody that could, could say no to me. You know, if you produce your own movie, you're like, I'm the guy. And you just make it happen. It's way better. And you have way more control. I don't like not having control. Because especially if you're going to have a small budget, then I want control. A big budget, fine. The studio's going to run the show. You know, my buddy Sam makes all the Spider-Man movies. That's a big deal. That's a big studio. Lots of opinions. Lots of chefs. You can't offend anybody. You know what I mean? You have to round off all the edges of your movie. So it's, it's a nice, easy pill to swallow. No jagged edges. Whereas little independent movies can have a strange hero, can have a bizarre ending or a strange story or a weird premise. Uh, they can have unlikable characters. You know, I mean, they can break every taboo. So they have more leeway. You know, everyone thinks A movies are it. B movies really are it, in my opinion, because you can do anything from a legit story to something completely fantastic and people will accept it. Do you think B movie is a derogatory term? 
Uh, yeah, in a way, but I accept it because it's, you know, B for budget. So here's a so, somewhat indiscreet question, but it's one that, that really affects independent filmmakers. We just made, spent the past three and a half years making a little independent film, and we're like close to, you know, personal bankruptcy. How, how is it that... Oh, really? Oh, dear. I thought you were going to tell us how we can make a living and still do this sort of thing. The movie I just did, My Name is Bruce, shot it three summers ago. I built a back lot on my property, and it's enough to put my, put my wife in the hospital, basically, because the deal hadn't been inked yet, and yet the town had to get started, and there was no financing. It was coming. I mean, we, the guy had, you know, the thing had been signed, but the bank thing hadn't been set up, and... So I had to, six weeks of an entire construction payroll out of the air. I mean, so that was pretty nerve-wracking. You, you build yourself into the budget at, at a certain point as a producer? Oh, yeah, you pay yourself, sure, absolutely. What do you pay your, what, if you're making a movie for a million bucks, what do you pay yourself as a producer? There's certain percentages that you can follow, you know? Where do we, we access that type of information? Oh, there's good rules of thumb. I think if you're doing uh, two, three jobs, you can take about 10% of the budget. If you're doing, if you're only producing or starring, you know, you can take around 5% of the budget. So if it's, you know, a million dollars, what's that, 50000 That'd be great. I mean, at least it's something you can keep the lights on at home. Right, but that's the idea. You can't forget yourself. If you have a budget, you have to pay yourself. How does um, producing and acting affect your acting? Does it affect it in a positive or negative? Or? Uh, it should improve it because I can sit in the editing room and go, I don't like that take. I want to use a different take. Or cut away from that part. That part sucks. Or cut back and use this because this was cool that you guys didn't use. You know, so yeah, it has definite impact. You can fight for stuff that you like that some people might cut out otherwise. I also think that... If, if, you're, if you're the guy who hired the editor, they'll do what you tell them to do. And, and the other thing that you gain as an actor that also produces that other actors don't have is this sense of the macro. Because when you're an actor and you're worried about your shoe or your line or this, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this was great. And we really appreciate you taking the time with us. And really, some great stuff. We need advice. You know, we didn't, there weren't a lot of places we could go. So happy to help out some poor bastard, you know. All right, cool. Thank All right, you. thanks, Bruce. Thank you very much.